Everyone gets sick, but have you ever thought about how your body fights off infections? Dr. Ellen Rothenberg from Caltech studies the development of a white blood cell that plays a big part in keeping you safe from infections, the T-cell. She takes us on the harrowing journey that a T-cell takes in order to become the powerful protector that it is. This is Radio Bio. Don't know much biology. Hello and welcome to Radio Bio. I'm your host, Christy Donham. And I am Genevieve Mullins. We are joined today by Dr. Ellen Rothenberg, a researcher at Caltech. Hi. Hello, great. And thanks very much for having me. So to start off, we were wondering if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, and what you study. So um, I'm a professor at Caltech. I've been on the Caltech faculty since 1982, so it's really a long time. Um, I was quite young when I got my faculty job, and it's been really fun to be there over the years, although a little bit challenging. My lab has been working throughout this time on various aspects of T-cell development in the immune system, but we're really more interested in development and um, mechanisms for using the genome's information to guide and control development uh, than we are in actually studying the immune response. So we're really not an immunology lab, even though the cells that we're studying are um, the precursors of immune cells. And my lab has a pretty interdisciplinary um, scope of work. We consider ourselves um, systems biologists, genome researchers, uh, tr transcriptional regulation people, um, developmental biologists and so on like that, as well as working on the immune system. Um, so how, since you've been at Caltech for a very long time, how did you kind of originally get into the field that you're in and how did that, like, how did you get to where you are studying the development of T cells? So it goes back to when I was a grad student, actually, um, and we were working on viruses. We were working on retroviruses, which have an RNA genome, and they go into a cell, and the first thing they do is they make a DNA copy, and then they integrate into the cell's genome, and then after that, they become part of the cell. Um, they have an amazing symbiosis with the cell forever and ever after that. Um, and the interesting thing about it was that as I was a graduate student, people were discovering retroviruses that caused leukemia or other kinds of cancer, and most of them were not really good retroviruses. They were defective retroviruses that had picked up some cellular gene that they were now expressing in an altered form, and that was what was causing the malignancy. And the only way those viruses could could propagate from one cell to another was if they happened to hit that cell together with a non-defective um, retrovirus, which didn't have one of these cancer-causing genes in it. And that would provide the helper functions for both viruses. Well, I was thinking about this, and then I realized that the virus that I was working on for my project did cause leukemia, but it didn't have a cellular gene that it had picked up. It was just um, causing leukemia just by infecting the cell. And interestingly, the only kind of leukemia it caused was leukemia of early T-cell precursors. And so I started to wonder whether the condition of early T-cell precursors was maybe a little bit dangerously close to cancer as part of their natural development. Um, what could be so odd about them that infecting them with a virus that had no cancer-causing gene in it 
could tip them over the edge into cancer. They must be really on a knife edge. And so when I went to do a postdoc, I wanted to find out more about T-cell development. This was really in primitive years. People knew almost nothing about T-cells. They absolutely knew almost nothing about T-cell development. It was really, really, really early days. And so a lot of what we were doing for the first 10 years was just developing tools and figuring out how T-cells develop at all. The irony is that in the last 10 years, we've really come back to right near where I started this whole quest because we've learned that the very first cells that come into the T-cell development zone, the thymus, they have to proliferate quite a lot in order just to build up the right cell numbers. Very few cells come in. They build up big cell numbers. Then they start dividing. And it turns out the genes that they use to build up those cell numbers are exactly those leukemia-causing genes. It's the cell that's providing it, not the virus. What the viruses must have been doing was messing up some subtle aspect of the mechanism that normally shuts those cancer genes off when their work is done. And normally that works so well that T-cell leukemia is quite rare. But in the virus would break that control mechanism, and that was what we were seeing in those um, in the work that I had done long ago as a grad student. So we know so much more about it now, but it's just interesting to see it kind of come back to answering the question I started out with. So you managed to, you know, get through grad school studying viruses, and then you kind of transitioned into studying the development of T cells. And most of our listeners probably do not know what a T cell is. Um, so what is a T-cell, and why are they so important to study how they develop? Well, T-cells are really cool. So, uh, um, oh, Well, I definitely so, agree. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> T-cells are part of your immune system, and um, they are actually um, some of the cells which both distinguish between um, a potential threat and a non-potential threat, and they actually give instructions to the rest of the immune system what to do about it, or they help. Now, when I started, people thought T cells were the only ones that did that. I think now we're a little bit more humble, and we realize that T cells do this as part of a much broader system of interacting cells. But the beauty of T cells is that they each are um, developed so that they recognize, to first approximation, one thing in the outer world. And as long as that outer world thing isn't something that they encounter, they will be perfectly quiet. They'll go through your body circulating cheerfully. They can live for a long time. They don't need to divide at all, or they can divide a little bit, maybe once a month or something like that. They don't need to do anything. But if they encounter the thing that they recognize, they have an explosive response. They rapidly start proliferating. They um, make a large clone, um, every one armed with the same uh, potential uh, effector abilities, and then they start secreting molecules that recruit other immune cells. And they recruit them not only saying, problem here, come and help, uh, or problem here, come and kill. They also say, this is a problem of such and such a type. I think the kind of reinforcements we need is a little bit more sort of like um, sneezing and a little bit less um, 
chewing up all the tissue and destroying it. Or in another case, they might say, virus here, virus-infected cell, only way to get rid of it is kill the virus-infected cell, sacrifice it, bring in the murderous troops. The T cell makes that call. So first off, there are multiple types of T cells in your body, and they kind of fall into two main categories. One category of T cells are what we would call our helper T cells. These are the cells that are going to be at the site of infection, and they're going to be telling and recruiting other types of immune cells to, like, hey, you need to come in here and kill this bacteria, or you need to come in here and start attacking this worm, or you need to start, you know, making all of these other molecules to help us with effectively fighting off whatever this is. The other main class of T cells are what we would call our killer T cells. These are the T cells that are going to be out at these infected tissues and finding cells that are infected with a virus or that have become cancerous and tell them, hey, you need to stop what you're doing. You need to die right now because you are a problem. (laughs) And what Dr. Rothenberg is referring to are the helper T cells. And the idea that you have this single cell um, which may be focused on recognizing something different from any other T cell in the body because of the way they develop and quietly going around and yet possessing this power not only to explode with its own proliferation to make lots and lots of equal uh, warriors, but also the intelligence of the T-cell response, the ability to distinguish one kind of environmental threat from another or from none. A T-cell can also say, hey, no problem here, calm down, and that could be powerful too. So how can one cell develop which has this very specific recognition assignment and you could sort of make it sound like a human, exercise its own judgment about what to do when its judgment, quote unquote, has such huge consequences for the body. It's pretty amazing. So what Dr. Rothenberg here is talking about is how the potential that these cells are endowed with, there's a lot of control that has to get put in place to make sure that these cells are really appropriate and that they're good before they get out into your body. And all of this controls on the T-cell are put into place during development. Well, so a really amazing thing about T-cell development is that one criterion of um, whether they're bad or good, we know something about. It's whether they happen to be cursed with getting a a recognition assignment that would attack your own body. And we know that if the cells get that, basically it's by luck of the draw, pretty much, um, then they have to be killed before they're allowed to go out in the body. But just as a cell biologist, just as a molecular biologist, just to understand how cells work, how can you make a cell that has so much power and so much um, ability to choose its own activity pretty much on its own? you know, the idea that you have, that every single cell that's circulating through your body can make the decision about whether it's going to divide today or not, um, whether it's going to divide four times in three days or whether it's going to divide four times in four years, um, whether it's going to call in one kind of reinforcement or another or actually suppress a response, and that that's all portable with the T cell. It's circulating around the body. It doesn't have the same neighbors. The neighbors aren't reassuring it what to do so much. The T cell's 
coming into a new zone, it's checking out the system, and then it's basically deciding what to do and trying to get the whole system to follow its recommendation. So it's almost, it's almost the most human-like of, um, of, of the immune cells that I can think of because it's really, it's using molecules for social interactions. And, it's, and then the question of how do you make a cell that is set up to do these things and how do you make it different from all the other kinds of cells in your body um, it can live such a long time it can live a large fraction of the whole life of your body or it can commit suicide if it finds that it's doing something wrong it punishes itself you know and and um, or if it's not needed anymore or something like that so the idea that something about the development of the cell endows it with all of this kind of decision machinery and we don't really understand this decision machinery nearly as well as we'd like to. Um, we can understand little tiny chunks of it but we don't really understand how it all fits together. In order to study T-cell development researchers must look at the starting point, in this case hematopoietic stem cells. Dr. Rothenberg studies the development of T-cells by studying the path between these hematopoietic stem cells and T-cells. So what are hematopoietic stem cells? Oh, yes, thank you. And, yes. Um, like, what do they do? Why, like, why do we care about what they are? Right. It's a really good question. So hematopoietic just means giving rise to blood. And so it turns out that even though we, we repair our skins, um, and we repair our hair and stuff like that as we live, but um, we really repair our blood all the time. And so our blood is constantly being um, replenished with fresh blood cells. And the blood stem cells, are called hematopoietic stem cells, are the cells that um, hang out in uh, your bone marrow. And periodically they get activated and make uh, start to divide, and their offspring become a new wave of blood cells. And um, they're very, very interesting because the same stem cells give rise to many different kinds of blood cells. The red blood cells that are um, important for are staying alive and for having endurance enough for long races, <laughs> um, and the um, a lot of innate immune cells that are the first line of defense when we get bacteria or something like that into a cut in our, or we tear an, you know, part of our body. Um, and then these, the lymphocytes, which are the kinds of cells like T cells and B cells, which are part of the um, immune system that actually sort of focus each cell on different possible target. And the same blood stem cells have all of those as descendants. They, the same one gives rise to thousands of descendants, and they all go um, and do different things. So it's a great problem, an interesting uh, question. How does one, how do each of the little grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren of the same stem cell figure out to do something different in the right proportions to give the body the right balance of these different kinds of blood cells. And um, it's a really good problem. And we've been interested for a long time in um, sort of how the cells make the decision to decide to become T cells. But the point is that as they make that decision, they're also making the decision, nope, I don't think I'm going to become a red blood cell. I'm not going to become an innate immune cell. I'm not going to become a B cell. I'm not going to become XYZ. And so that actually, 
um, is, you know, to, to relate this decision process to an actual molecular mechanism that's operating in the cells um, is a really interesting one. And the blood stem cells are a great system where we know individual cells can give rise to all of these cells. And they keep on doing it, a different, maybe a different one this week than next week, but they go on doing it throughout your life. So I'm curious, could you walk us a little bit through uh, the development of when you go from a hematopoietic stem cell to a, a fully developed T cell? Oh, yeah. It's a really exciting track. And again, it's really hard to resist the temptation to make it personal, you know, and like it, as though the cells were people because they go through such really um, dramatic adventures. So almost all the other kinds of blood cells can develop from the stem cells just there in the bone marrow. And um, that is a zone where most of your blood cell types go completely to maturity, but not T cells. And um, the cells that are going to be T cells maybe don't really know that they're going to be T cells yet, but they sort of escape from the bone marrow when they're still very immature. And they can still give rise to multiple things. They may land in their circulation in the blood in this organ called the thymus, which is this uh, organ that sits above your heart, and it's actually most active in your youth, when you're young or when you're a baby. Um, and it, um, it actually provides like a school for T cells, but it's a really tough school. Um, it's more like boot camp as well as a finishing school. And the, the cells come in and first they get influenced by signals from the environment that's around them in the thymus. And we know a lot about what those signals are, um, but it's really amazing what it actually activates in these cells. So they start to turn on genes that they wouldn't have expressed before because they're in the thymus. And then the cells start to move through the thymus. There are actually little antechambers in the thymus and little rooms and little compartments. And there's a path that the cells are supposed to follow. And as they go through the thymus, the signals they get probably change a little bit, although we're not sure exactly how they change, but we have some pretty good ideas. And so the cells get kind of pushed along the pathway, um, constantly turning on new genes, turning off some genes. And some of the genes they turn off are the ones that would have allowed them to become something else. But they couldn't use those genes um, to become anything else while they were in the thymus because the thymus is basically saying, don't do anything but just follow this path. Don't Just, just keep going forward. And so, sooner or later, the cells can no longer do anything else, even if you take them out of the thymus. And that's the that's the process that my lab studies. But now, now that they have no options, now they are put through an incredible high-risk, high-gain process. And this is when they are actually instructed to express enzymes that cut up their own genome and start making mutations in their own genome. And the purpose of this is it's a really risky proposition. The cells can end up dead. Um, they could end up really dangerous to the body. But what the idea is, is to try to get each cell to assemble from pieces a gene that will help them get a recognition assignment. 
that will become their recognition assignment. And this is such a scary process. It really exists in only one other cell type in the body, and that's B cells. Um, and, but T cells are just doing this. And um, then, of course, you've got a lot of really damaged cells that don't do it right. And so you have to start killing them. And it's absolutely amazing how much the thymus lures these cells in, stimulates them to grow, and then puts them in this horrible experience where many of them are going to be assassinated for failure to be good. And they do it not once but twice. So the cells, they first get one round of being checked to see if they got part of this recognition specificity assignment correctly done. The cells that manage to do that, um, you know, they must not weep a bitter tear about the fate of their cousins who are now dead on the floor of the thymus. Um, they are supposed to be instead rewarded for their success by being induced to proliferate even more, a lot more. So at this point, um, don't think that the cells are out of trouble. In fact, they're in, now in their worst possible stage because now they're going to be actually um, changed so that they now have no way to keep themselves alive for more than the next three days. They're doomed to die at this point unless they pull a rabbit out of the hat, metaphorically, and they manage to get their the other part of their recognition receptor to be perfect, again, through mutating their DNA, cutting it up, rejoining it, lots of randomness. And this time it's even worse because this time, not only do they have to make a correct receptor, but it has to be just right. It has to be not too good at recognizing anything in your body, but not so bad that it doesn't just sort of nuzzle up against some structures in your body. It's estimated that as few as 2 to 5% of those cells actually pass this test. That means 95 to 98% of them are shamelessly murdered in the thymus every generation. It's an amazing process. So this is very dramatic. I mean, this is an extremely tough ordeal for the cells. The ones that come through, they're rewarded by getting back the chance to live. And now they don't just get back the chance to live one more day. Now they get back, potentially, the chance to live as long as your whole body. It's an amazing thing. We still do not understand how this process can control so precisely uh, the life expectancies of these cells. We know a little bit about that. But this is really built into this thing. And then they come out with this potential to live for a really long time, but also strong instructions. If you get a certain kind of signal, if you're in a certain kind of environment, if you react too strongly more than is needed anymore, you have to commit suicide. Yes, sir, say the T-cells. Then they, they go out. And other T-cells are programmed to do slightly different things. Um, and that's a really fascinating aspect of it, too. But they actually go on learning when they go out. It's just that what they go through during this early part of their development is so, first, it's interesting developmental biology to make them take this step of committing to be a T cell. But then the price they pay for that um, in terms of the chance of surviving being so awful and the risk that the body takes of having a bunch of cells that are dividing rapidly that suddenly sit down and start mutating their DNA 
those cells could turn into cancer cells. Those cells could turn into, you know, complete rogue cells. Um, you don't, and so the system only works because the body is a, has got um, very, very tight control of the process and the thymus, which doesn't let those cells out until they're perfect, um, or almost perfect, um, <laughs> 90% perfect. Um, the thymus doesn't let them out. Think how tough that control must be to deal with the mistakes that are made in this process. So it's really a very dramatic story. And then when they go out into the body and start circulating around, um, they, they actually have more learning experiences. So that's the, the really awful part of their life is mostly over. And they now can adapt their, uh, their, their behavior to all kinds of signals they get from the environment around them. It's a fascinating story. It's just such an amazing story. And when I've taught this to my students, they say, you know, oh, this is just like going to graduate school. Or no, being out, being outside is a little bit like going to graduate school. You may not be sure exactly what PhD thesis project you want to take, but um, you'll pick one eventually, <laughs> you know. So I, I'm curious, what... Um, helped you make the decision to, in general, just go to graduate school? Oh, I'm an academic brat. I never <laughs> didn't consider going to graduate school. It was just a question of what field I wanted to do my PhD in. Yeah, it was it was actually kind of neat. Um, my parents were incredibly encouraging. Uh, I don't think that I had nearly as hard a trip into academe as a lot of people that are my students now. Um, and I really admire the ones who have the toughness and the, you know, the the, the, the strength of purpose to do it even when they don't have an academic family like mine. My problem was not from my family. My problem was that girls in the 1950s and 60s were not supposed to be scientists. They were not supposed to be the top of their math class. They were not supposed to be, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so, um, so I ran into a lot of social flack, but never from my family. And um, I think that that also helped to make it possible, you know, science is tough. And I think we all know that people don't get grants the first time they apply for them. They don't get their papers accepted the first time they submit them. And a lot of what I encountered as a student when I was young helped me um, for the rest of my life just to say, okay, those guys don't get it. Uh, I'm gonna go back and prove them wrong, you know. And, and, I, and that's come up again and again and again and again and again. It's just part of the apparatus. <laughs> that's really inspiring. Yeah, there, you need a, quite a bit of resilience to be in science. Yeah, you do need a home team, though. And I mean, for me, it was my family. And so for someone who's coming from a family which doesn't have an academic tradition and where maybe, you know, instead of the family sacrificing for the student, there might be a time when the family needs the student to come back and help them. And that's a really tough problem for a young student to deal with. And there are tremendous pulls in both directions. And I think, you know, it's really important for students to have someone who's encouraging them, someone who's saying, you know, there are a lot of ways of getting where you want to go and um, just don't give up. Don't drop out. Don't stop. You can even take a detour. Just don't stop. <laughs> so in my generation, a lot of people were going to school. Um, 
for the first time and women were finally, finally, finally going to science. Basically my classmates, the ones older than we were, ran into flack ad nauseum, but my classmates and younger people got in as women. But um, there, it was also much more open to academe. There was a lot more money available. Education was cheap. It was, um, it was really an open resource for anyone who was in the United States. That is not the case so much anymore. And um, it's not as easy to be, you know, just um, part of this. But I, I learned a lot from older people who had come up from a totally different environment and a different social environment. And maybe it actually harks closer to the other kinds of experiences you're talking about. It turns out when I thought about the people that I knew who were senior faculty when I was growing up, who really were creative, who really totally transformed the fields that they were working in, not just by being a little bit faster with beating everyone else out of the same race, but really, really creative people. Nine times out of 10, those guys were first generation. Nine times out of 10, they had either had a real manual labor job or they had worked on a farm. They actually saw reality Reality was not something that you made up in a computer screen. It was actually something that you had personal experience of. You knew what it, how heavy it was. You knew what angle you had to lift something at. You knew what it smelled like, I swear. You know, I mean, and those people had, because of their contact with real life, they could see solutions to problems. They could see interesting questions that the people who were following the curriculum didn't even know were there. And um, those people ended up being major, major forces in biology, much more innovative, much more far-reaching contributions than a lot of us who live more protected lives. So I think that it's a strength. I think it's absolutely a strength if you can use it right and if you can get the right support group. Um, it definitely made a difference. They were so much more aware of what the really interesting questions were. If you, I'm, I'm curious, if you had unlimited resources, what would be your, like, dream project? I would love to have time. <laughs> because the fact is, um, you do a series of experiments that teach you something that you didn't know because you know that, it sheds light on something else. And I think that's where the idea of funding a person rather than a project can be useful. If you give people some confidence that, you know, they'll have five years or they'll have seven years to actually follow the results of their first experiments with another one after and another one after. Um, I think that what we're working on right now are things that I actually care a lot about. Um, but to be quite realistic, um, if I had more lifetimes, I could probably find 10 or 20 other things that I would love to work on too. Um, you know, you're lucky if you find a project that you really, really feel keeps being exciting and teaching you new things as you go forward. Um, but it doesn't say that that's the only project in the world that you might ever be interested in. Sometimes I think that the immunology field is crowded enough so that, um, in all honesty, although I I can see a lot of these things. I think that for younger people starting out, sometimes it's fun to go into an area where there's more open space, um, where if you are trying to figure out what a result means, you actually have the time to 
find out the answer yourself without somebody else scooping you. And so I think going into these less studied questions, less studied areas can be enormously gratifying if you can do it. And I would love, if I, want, if I had infinite funds, I'd probably want to get some new people into my lab alongside the ones who are working now. But just to try out some new things, probably I would be interested in the evolution of the immune system. I still think that evolutionary questions are some of the most, you know, philosophically profound ones about biology. Um, you know, really, what, what was it that um, allowed these different kinds of modes of interaction with the environment to come along and um, immunological memory, how many different ways is memory encoded in the immune system? Um, how much is it, you know, with this, there's so many new things about these fetally derived immune cells. They're basically a memory since your fetal life, your whole life. The macrophages in your brain were, lay, were set down there in your, when you were a fetus. I mean, you know, we're living a long time. That's a long time. To, so it's memory of our fetal lives. And, and um, I think that there's so much to learn about that, but then also the evolutionary history of what, what mechanisms are really the primordial ones, what were the innovations, what were the blind alleys that didn't work out. Um, there's just so much to know. Yeah, and I think in terms of evolution, the immune system is a really interesting one to study because of the way that it has to co-evolve with the pathogen yes. fighting and you yes. so you have to understand both sides of how they evolved to compete against each other and it's great crazy. point great point yeah it's a great point and and yeah and the history of organisms too um you know obviously the pathogens you encounter in the ocean are not the same as the ones you're going to encounter on land. And um, I think there's been a lot of interesting speculation about this. One thing that's so cool about facing evolutionary questions now is now we have the ability to get the genome of any organism we want. And with CRISPR, maybe we're going to be able to make mutants in any organism we want. So, you know, all of this old work was based on making these evolutionary trees in the pre-genomic era. And so People know the fossil record. They know which organisms were more distantly related, which ones were more closely related. But they can't, in those days, they couldn't put it together with molecular mechanism. It was hard to grow those animals in the lab. So people sort of said, okay, we're just going to focus on mice and C. elegans and da da da, you know, <laughs> flies. And the thing is that now, um, in principle, you can learn things from the evolutions of the genomes themselves of practically any animal that you can get to just extract DNA from. And I think that this could, if people were open-minded enough to look at it, um, there are many, many organisms, and 95% of the life in this earth are life forms that live in the ocean and not on land. And the how we got to be us and what false, um, you know, where our hematopoietic blood stem cells came from, where our uh, immune cells came from, um, where our different kinds of skins came from. Probably the, the original answers were in animals that lived in the sea, but most people don't even know how to recognize what they are. Most people never study them or see them. And um, I think that it would be that's just an example of one of the areas where there are huge numbers of questions that could be asked that 
aren't being asked right now, even though some of them have tools that we could now use to answer them. It's just an example. What do you love most about your job? Oh my God, I love discovering <laughs> something new every day. I mean, I, there is nothing that beats that. And um, one can have terrible personal things that happen. I think many of us have gone through periods of hardship. But you come into the lab and you talk to someone and they bring out some new data and you suddenly see how something new that they just discovered fits together with something that you never knew the answer to and suddenly you see it's sitting there or you see a whole new thing there that is more fascinating than what you had assumed you would find. It just you your life just opens out it becomes so exciting and to be in a profession where you have that experience again and again and again and you know you have setbacks constantly and you have frustrations you get irritated with your colleagues you get irritated with the funding agencies constantly etc but to be in this chance to be in the, in the situation where you can come in and look at the data, whether it's your own hands that did it or some wonderful person who's working with you, and you realize that you didn't know that answer before and it's opened a whole new world to you, it's, there's, it's really one of the great privileges of being a human being. I think little kids have that all the time when they're just learning. We as scientists get to keep that for an entire career. It's spectacular. It's beautiful. It's way better than money. I mean, <laughs> it's way better than money. This episode of Radio Bio was produced by Jeff Lauder and Kinsey Brock, edited by Jackie Shea, and the artwork was made by Kinsey Brock. Radio Bio is supported by the Quantitative and Systems Biology Graduate Group and the Graduate Division at the University of California Merced. For more information, you can visit our website at radiobio.net or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram.